You're listening to Within Tolerance, a podcast for machinists by a machinist. I'm your host, Dylan Jackson from Protea Machining. And this week, I'm very happy to welcome Matt Hertel from Pocket NC. Welcome, Matt. Hey, how are you, Dylan? I'm doing well. So before we jump into your backstory, what is Pocket NC? What do you guys do? I mean, I feel like at this point, everybody's got to know the Pocket NC name. But just in case, what do you guys do? What do you make? All that good stuff. Yeah, right. So Pocket NC is a company that makes small machine tools and little five-axis ones. They, they, they were kind of designed to fit on your desktop. We started that making those about the time that 3D printers were getting popular. And we were kind of, we were, Michelle was working at Boeing and I was working at a supplier for Boeing. And yeah, and we, we just decided to kind of get in on that because it was something we both felt like we could be passionate about. So yeah, they're little little five x milling machines. And uh, yeah, I guess if, if, if you're not familiar with machining by now, I don't, I don't know, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, I, I definitely want to get into your backstory because I was listening. You guys had a great interview on the DFX podcast. Well, maybe a couple years ago or something like that. Yeah, and that kind of got into the backstory of Pocket NC. But you guys kind of just glossed over, you know. Oh yeah, Matt has some machining background, so I, I want to get into, you know, how did you get into manufacturing and then get to where oh, you yeah. guys are now? Yeah, in high school we had some bridge, I think we, like a bridge port or like an off-brand bridge port. I don't quite recall. You know, like I, I, I don't remember all those names, but there was a, you know a lot of lookalikes, and then uh, so I, I got. I got kind of hooked on it there. And after some messing about with an electrical engineering degree, I decided to go into machining at a trade school out in Helena, uh, Montana, which is our capital. And yeah, I, I really liked it. I really enjoyed it. And it, it was all manual for the first year. And then the second year got into the CNC side of things. That was fun and scary, exciting. And but like you could make all these things and, 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 you know, we trained with, it was like all high speed steel. And a lot of times we had to grind our own, like our own turning tools for, for our, for our lathes. And my lathe actually had uh, a, a leather belt on it and it was like, it would always loosen up. <laughs> so it oh was like, it was goodness. an old, uh, yeah, what was that? Clausing. It was really accurate. It was awesome. But, it, but that, that, that damn leather belt would always stretch out and the little staples would come out. <laughs> and so you'd like. I look over one time and my, my buddy was on a, uh, he was on a matching closet and he was like, I, it was so ridiculous. He was pushing the belt with his hand, like a, like a giant sewing machine or something like that. Cause <laughs> his belt just loosened up anyway. Uh, so yeah, that, that was kind of, I got into it there and then I, I went to work for a company um, called Electro Impact out in Washington, which was just such a great experience. I think like working anywhere, you know, it has it's good and it's bad, but the good was just that like here's a company who they re they really believed in people like making their own stuff and putting their own stuff together and they just made amazing engineers and machinists that way that it was there was so much prototype work we rarely made it more than 10 parts of anything but usually it was like one to three parts and so that was just yeah you know the, the, the prototyping work is just like there's the experience is just second to none you know oh yeah uh, that's the world i live in so i, I totally yeah understand. right <laughs> yeah, yeah your your brain is just always having to solve these these problems so, it, so i was really fortunate to get to do that and then so at about that time makerbot was coming out with their machine and and we were talking about i think it was the oh 
the thingomatic is what it was. Yeah. And, and it, 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 I'd seen the cupcake buyer, you know, the cupcake, cupcake uh, machine. But anyway, they, we started to, yeah, you, you, we started to talk about making one for, for just like home projects and stuff. And then at one point we're like, what if we started to design our own that we could sell to people? And that was super naive. Like there's, it's so much work, but it, working at Electro Impact was cool because they would let you prototype your own stuff using their tools, materials. So I could use all their end mills and, and they would actually let me use their, you know, aluminum. I could just carve up a piece on the f- floor. It was, it was no big deal to them. And that's and also, yeah, I know it's un- unreal. And then they, they also had access to, uh, SolidWorks and and MasterCam, right? So so I could, here I could use, I, I had just free access to all this stuff. So Michelle and I would go in at like crazy hours, like on a Friday night. So the, the, there was a night shift during the week, but on, uh, starting Friday night, you could go in and start start at ten, I think it was, and we'd work to like two to four in the morning and on the project, yeah, and pre- pre- prototyping, and then and then we'd we'd both be too tired and we'd bail. <laughs> the first shop I worked in was yeah. very similar. Like that, nobody else took advantage of it, but my boss was totally fine with me. You know, grabbing some scrap aluminum and yeah. spending an hour or two after work every day. You know, working on whatever I wanted. And I think people, I think shops don't realize the opportunity that provides. They only see the downside. They're like, oh, you know, well, you could scrap the machine, or you could break a spindle, or whatever. It's like, yeah, but there's so much learning that you do when it's your own project, and you like want it. Oh do it right and like you know you want to like iterate and all that and I, I really i love that opportunity that's so cool that you guys had that too yeah it, it was huge so yeah i took it took advantage of that then we kind of we, we moved out to montana we moved into my parents basement and, and i didn't do much machining between uh then and, and until we launched our, or got close to launching our kickstarter campaign we realized we needed to do you know a few more prototypes and we ponied up on a haas mini mill and put that in our garage and <laughs> Michelle's very so cool. funny. Yeah. So it was, so it's like, you have all this experience with machining and everything. And, and Michelle's like very type A. So she went in and she just like started reading the Haas manual, which I don't think most people do. And she, and she I'd be like, I don't know why you're doing that, but I didn't want to like, you know, put her down because, because I just figured I knew it all. Right. But, and then she'd come and be like, did you know you could do this on the machine? I'd be like, no, I had no idea. And then she'd like, you know, run through it. How do you do it? stuff and like so all that was just amazing and then yeah but that that's kind of where like the machining that's pretty much my past it's you know it's not i didn't work at a ton of shops um what did the uh, shop you worked at had as as far as machinery goes was it all three axes or yeah that was crazy so they didn't have very i want to say they didn't have very good good machines but um it, it depending on just how you look at it, I would say. So they had a lot of like these Bridgeport machines, but they were they were like the again the knockoff machine. Here's a company that has like they, they do just like world class stuff, and they, they did for the some of the production stuff have DMG machines. Um, but then for all the, like the prototyping, it was just all these Bridgeports with that Accurite control. I don't know if you have you ever seen those, Tone. Yeah, yeah, I've never yeah. used one actually, but my last guest. Alex Kern was also talking about that's how they started yeah. their instrument division was, you know, like or when he came back is they had one of those as well. So that's really yeah. interesting to hear it come up again. And there's, they were incredibly fast. You could, you can, you could just do so much on them. I'm kind of drawing some blanks on, on 
you know, what, what about it was because, you know, it's 10 years ago now, but. Oh, actually uh, I saw your post, by the way, congrats on 10 years. of oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. No, that, yeah, that was, yeah, Michelle and I got married 10 years ago and wait, is that what you're talking about? Is our Oh, I, I didn't know. Was it, is it your anniversary? <laughs> yeah, sorry. I should have said that. I should have specifically said anniversary. I, I thought it was your anniversary that. of pocket NC. I didn't realize oh, no. it was. Who knows when that is? <laughs> like we started it so many years before we actually launched it. Yeah, no, that was yesterday was our 10 year anniversary. Oh, well then, so. yes. Happy yeah. anniversary. Very Thanks. cool. Well, so the reason I was asking yeah. about the machinery is where did the idea to make a horizontal desktop five axis come from? Because, you know, I, oh, like, I, yeah. I feel like anybody who had only access to maybe three axis mills in the, in the past would have looked at the, the problem of making a desktop five axis and been like, well, clearly I make a vertical AC five axis, call it a day. You know, this is a tried and true C frame, call, you know, go from there. So where, where did, how did you come to that decision? Yeah, when we were just, so that we kind of, I don't remember how we ended up on the size. Oh, no, I do remember. Okay, so the size of the machine was based uh, around the diameter of the tooling. And we, we figured that this is the, the machine was going to be mostly used with eighth inch shank tooling, which only has, it has a pretty short maximum reach, right? And, and until like recently when, you know, Daytron started coming out with some amazing single flute, longer reach tools, right? With a quarter inch shank and then, or six millimeter shank and then reduced. But yeah, so we've kind of built it. We built the size of the, the work envelope around the tool that we figured there's no sense of going too big and for that for better or for worse, right? Obviously people need work holding and stuff. So there's some high, stuff in hindsight that we could have done better on, but yeah. And then we, so my night shift manager, Gary, him and I would just spend so much time talking about like, how would you make this thing so that somebody could actually set it up and it, it, you like, hey, do you 3d print much Dylan? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm actually I'm looking at my 3D printer, and then I'm currently, ah, man, I'm like a couple hundred dollars of worth of parts away from starting to build my Voron. So I'm definitely okay, into it. Okay, you're like all in. So the like on so on some of those old 3D printers, especially, there's like no room to get your hands in there or do any right. And 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 we were just like, this is a problem with small machines. Is how do you like? You have no clearance or way to get in your hands are big. Like you're, and then you're trying to do all this stuff in these tight little areas. And we're, so eventually we ended up with that horizontal design and we're like, this will give people, you know, top front access to setting up their parts and they'll give them like a good visual area. And uh, that was, that was kind of how we settled on it. And then from there, you know, it just worked on the concept of how do you get all the motion and fit it, all the motors and everything in there. Okay. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. That's uh, it. It's such a cool design because I feel like you gain a lot of rigidity as well by not having a tiny C frame that probably would have been weak anyway. <laughs> yeah, May- yeah, maybe that was how we planned it, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, we did. Uh, I mean, it's funny how you look back and you, you're like, oh, that was good, or oh, that was a total crap move. So, yeah, this. <laughs> That was, I guess, maybe a little bit lucky. It's hard to say, you know, after all these years, how much of it was really thought through and how much of it was luck. Luck. Okay. Well, so you mentioned kind of bad decisions as well. I've noticed that when machinists buy tooling or really anything, we are the best in the world at finding the weak points at things. Totally. So after you released your first round of uh, V1s, 
what were the things that surprised you that came back as like, oh, this is not working or this broke really quickly or, you know, how did how did people destroy your baby in, you know, ways that you didn't expect? We tried to make that machine as low cost as we possibly could. So we loaded it with weak points like just deep in the, you know, the belt we chose, it was able to absorb oil. So people who use WD-40 and stuff like that, that belt just absorbed it and became a giant break on the machine. And so like, oh, no. every, people would be like, oh, the, you know, our rotary axes are binding up. What's the deal here? And, and pretty quickly we got down to the bottom of that. And then, you know, a weak point is putting all the electronics in the machine. We're moving away from that because, you know, you just, you're making tiny little bits of metal shavings, right? Like the most ideal way to ruin something is by <laughs> like, you look at, you know, about satellites and tin whiskers, but uh, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, I love yeah, yeah. And so these tin whiskers grow on things and, and it's like, here you have a little tiny piece of metal and it's just traveling out into space, shorting things out. And that, that's like, here's a machine that makes little tiny shavings of metal, right? And it's just like a matter of time before that fails. And then, you know, the, the, I feel like the, the biggest, one of the biggest design flaws that was just like, we should have known better was we put that dumb little yellow button on the side of it just to save money. You know, <laughs> like we're like, we need a stop button on this machine, but we shouldn't have, you know, gone low cost on that because, uh, it just wasn't as reliable as you might uh, be like, you really need your, your cycle start and, and feed hold buttons to be like as reliable as possible. But the funny thing is we still have people like cranking on their v1s and it is like this every once in a while somebody calls in they're like hey i'm having this problem with our v1 we're like oh my and you know they talk about you know all the parts that they've made on criminy people you know people find workarounds you know they make the people that want to make it work holy moly they made it they made it work so yeah right so then going to the V2, besides yeah. the spindle, you guys went from what, 10K to 50K? Uh, yeah, I mean, so you're right. So we, yeah, we increased the motor. We, we mostly were looking for like increased torque and in, on a couple different things. And then the high RPM was just that, that little tiny spindle was, it was okay with 10K, but it just did so, it had so much more potential. And there was a lot of people who were like, oh, I just need to be able to make stuff faster. And as a little side note, most of our, like only 1% of our machine buyers ended up being hobbyists, less than 1%. It was all these people prototyping, doing R and D stuff. Oh, really? And so, the, so the, yeah, cool. so they, yeah, so they didn't really have a budget, which was very interesting. We'd sold a bunch of machines to Gillette and like DuPont and, and NASA and stuff. And, and it was, and oh, it was wow. like. They didn't, they didn't care so much about budget, but they, they just needed a machine that would work for their application. Here's people like, you're never going to go give just some random engineer access to the good machines in your shop because right. that's, you're not going to have a shop. Yeah. And Especially so, a five uh, axis. You're not going to be like, oh, here's a, a Hermley or here's a, you know, DMG oh or God. something. Like, yeah, right. Have fun. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, there's, but that's just how, how it happens. And so the, the, that machine ended up being perfect for all these, you know, grad students and, you know, people prototyping that they're like, they had to wait so long to make their parts, they would get these machines. And so, so naturally they were just like, oh, 50, can you, is there a way we can get more RPM so we can, you know, make things faster and it costs us just not an issue. And so, so naturally it just progressed into that direction of, you know, better, better equipment. Yeah. Okay. 
And then, so what else was changed? Like, what what did you, what lessons did you learn in V1 that you also applied to V2? Just a lot of how the parts were manufactured. Like, uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of probing and checking on parts and how they're made just to make sure they, you know, they come out right. And it would be, it kind of helps with the start of the process. If you're putting together a machine that the parts are no good, the machine's going to have problems. So that, we, that was a that was a big step forward is how we made our parts, and then we learned a lot of the lessons in the electronics and how we built those, and just where some of the failures were. So that uh, a ton of changes there, and things are always progressing along that line. But then you know the first machine was belt driven, and we were t- using stepper motors in tandem, and uh, stepper motors are great for for a lot of things, but in CNC they're they they can. They can be great if they're used in their most ideal situations, but very quickly you step outside of their limits. So with the V2, we're still using stepper motors, but we, we tried to really like tune things for, for the stepper motors so that they could, you know, be ideal. So like we didn't go any faster on our, we, we didn't increase our feet, our speeds on travel and stuff. But like with the rotary axes, we, you know, we, instead of doing the belt drive, like I was talking about the, we switched to using a, a worm gear drive, which, which was really nice. And, but it was, that was a process because we kind of had to make our own worm gears. So we had, we had to make a small machine that you load in, you know, injection molded blank. And, and then we use a special hobbing tool and cut the, you know, with, with servo motors and stuff. It's just like. That, that that's took cool. Off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was that was probably some of the big improvements there. At that point, did you yeah. guys? This might be a great time to talk about what machinery you guys have internally to make all these machines. At that point, did you guys have your five axis? Yeah, somewhere maybe I don't know if it was right before. I mean, it must have been right before we started making the V two. We were close to it. We we bought a UMC seven fifty and. That was a that was a big improvement for us. That at one point in time we had moved from the from just doing three axis machine on all our parts, and so you have you know six sides per parts to a fourth axis, and it took a ton. It may just be it, it, like overnight allowed us to double our production, which was amazing. And then when we moved to the five axis, there were similar improvements, but on top of that, we were still able to reduce some of our errors that we had by taking it all at once the human yeah yeah right yeah instead of flipping and messing things up listening to your interview with ed i I, like the irony was not lost on me that you're like oh yeah we're building a five axis machine but we're doing like nine ops in our mini mill you know making v1 and i was like yeah that's that's rough that's really rough. It was, yeah (laughs) it had its moments of frustration for sure yeah and so now we have and then yeah we had the UMC 750 for actually a f- quite a few years and we built on some automation to it. And then uh, eventually we, we did sell it and we bought a deuce on the Haas is really, really great for getting going, but we sort of have been on that. We've been, we've just been pushing it for, for what it's capable tolerance wise. And uh, so, so we bought a uh, deuce on DVF 5000 and then we pushed the automation and improved it over to that and sold off the UMC 750. But then we bought a UMC 1000 for just prototyping stuff. And that's been pretty good, but it, it 
it was probably struggles a little bit more than the UMC 750 did on tolerances because of the um, just bigger uh, travels and everything. Yeah, I think so. And, and they, you know, they redid the, um, and it's a company that's learning as well, right? How to make stuff. And, and they, they do really well by serving people in a certain accuracy class and they do it well. And so um, naturally, if you're trying to push the limits of things or, you know, like, I mean, like a DMG machine is, is, you know, going to struggle beyond two ten thousands, right? So if you naturally, if like your goal is to be above two ten thousands, well, you probably have the wrong machine for your finishing ups, right? It's just not, there's, there's only so much they're capable of and shame on you for, you know, trying to push it more than, than is, you can consistently do. So that's, that's kind of what we have for machines for now and it's good i hate the control on it so much um, is it fanic or is it the it's high, a fanic okay. it's a yeah and it's, it's I'm like i grew up on the haas control which they did great with and is super and it's like three button presses to every one button press it seems like on the on the haas so that was maybe a little bit of a mistake the machine itself is so accurate and consistent and we we love just about everything about the machine but God, I hate using it. So uh, <laughs> just like I just like every time I because we we set it up for automation, so everything's very like consistent and stuff, and you almost never have to tamper with anything. But then when you do, and it's like I, I feel like I'm learning something all over again because I just don't use the control day in and day out, and it's such right. a whiner thing to say. But like, no, I, I totally I, understand. Yeah. I was just talking to a friend recently, and I can't remember how it came up, but he was like, "Oh, are you like are you thinking about Matsura?" Because we're looking at a five axis possibly for our next machine. Yeah, and uh, I was like, would, "No, Matsura being the main focus, or no, no." So, so he had okay. asked me that, and I said, "No, yeah, definitely yeah. not." And he's like, "Well, why? Like, you love Yamazin, you know?" And I was like, I, "If I'm spending five axis money, I don't want a Fanic. Like, that, that is really what it comes down to." Yeah. I hear you, and I totally understand. Yeah, well, we had weird. We did have some weird issues, like engraving. You would have never guessed, but engraving seems almost nearly impossible on the Doosan, which it really? blows. Yeah, and you can do it. And, and, but I mean, like, so John, our software engineer, he's like an extreme works guy. He's so dang smart. And, and so everything he does, like math based animation, and everything. And he, 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 and he, he's an awesome software engineer. That is the only thing I have seen foul him up is how to engrave on that machine. I mean, he, this guy writes new G code programs all the time, like routines and stuff. He understands G code to its core. I've never met anybody who understands G code like John understands G code, and it was just it, like he was struggling. Wow. So, and in the end, we we you know we were able to do some engraving on some of our parts. Like this is one thing that we did re- that was really great on our on the UMC 750 when we were running our automation. All, all of our parts had like serial numbers and and tolerance bands on them and stuff. And then when we moved over to the the Doosan, the tolerances were significantly better, so we didn't have as many of those problems, and we didn't have to check on batches and stuff. But a good night, you're not going to like be able to track it by its part numbers because like we just physically could not master that. Um, it just wouldn't so, look good or, or what was the the issue? Like what would happen when you guys were trying to engrave? Yeah, it, it's just we couldn't we couldn't figure it out. Like you have to do all these weird letter calling stuff. I'm going to mess it up. I'm not even going to try. But yeah, it was just it was we could, I, I, I quit and let those guys try to figure it out. And they got it on the parts <laughs> that absolutely mattered. And beyond that, they just they just let it go. Oh, so, yeah. yeah, yeah, I know it's terrible. And then and there's also some things like you know it was really difficult for the do some people to 
to figure out how to like every time we load a face mill, it chips the inserts on the face mill because the RPM's too high on on the probing routine. Yeah, and, and they can't they, to this day they couldn't they couldn't figure out how to change it in the Fanuc control. And, it, and it's not from a lack of trying. I think it's just they really struggled worth working with uh, Doosan and between the Doosan people and the uh, Fanuc people to get that figured out. So to this day, we still set our face mill off the off of a known height, like a gauge block. And yeah, it, it's it's wild though. And so, but I think that's kind of the the, the Fanuc control is just so you know outdated. Yeah. Right. So, sorry. So what are you what are you looking at, Dylan, for for machines? Then what do you think you'll get? We're not sure yet. Like. You know, I'd I love like a Kern or I'd love, you know, some super <laughs> yeah, expensive right. machine, but it's like, yeah, yeah, it's like I don't have, you know, close to a million dollars to spend. So right, right now on the short list, we're, we're possibly looking at like a Hermley C250. Yeah. Those come in right around actually the Doosan price as well, or at least a, a fully kitted Doosan, I guess I should say. But that's on our mind possibly because there's pretty good Hermley support in Phoenix, so pretty local. Whether or not we can get one. We'll see. It sounds like there's some companies in Arizona buying up a ton of Hermleys, making supply kind of short. So yeah, we're not we're not sure. We're gonna go to IMTS this year and kind of just walk the floor and look what sees it, look what is interesting to us. And yeah, you know whatever we buy, we're out of power right now, pretty much. So we're gonna have to factor in a shop move as well. Oh jeez, yeah, it, it's it's gonna be a nightmare. Like we have stretched the the limits of our space and power to where we are right now, and We'll see what's next. <laughs> yeah. no, that's cool. That's really cool, though. Yeah, it's always exciting. And it, it, it's so much people underestimate how work, much work it is to like do your research well and, and get a machine. I feel myself dropping the ball all the time. Like I should have I should have gone used to fan control. But at the end, it's still a great machine. So it can only, you can only complain a little bit because it's it gets the job done and it does it well. Yeah, yeah. it would. And Fanuc is dead reliable. Like it might not have yeah. all the bells and whistles, but like. You probably won't ever have a, a you know a servo drive go out for twenty years or something like that. Right. As long as you change the batteries, you're good. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You got to make sure to do that. Well, before we get into questions, you mentioned automation. I wanted to talk a little bit about you, your what you have automated, how you guys att- approached automation, yeah, and all of that stuff. We have our everything forward of the op one so the op one uh, uh, the op one on all our v2 parts are we, we put on the work holding that we're going to use in the doosan and then we load those onto a block just of material that that has like the vero s you know the zero point clamping pin and its clocking pin and yeah and then we we, we we bolt all that up put it into a giant rack and the the we have a universal robot ur 10 Okay, and it just picks those up and loads them into the machine, pulls them out when they're done, and it can. It doesn't have to be one part at a time. We can run you know, any different combination of of parts through, um, which is pretty nice. And I mean, some of that, it, some of that is because John wrote some some software in a little web server, so we can you know select our parts that we want to run, and so it's pr- it's fairly fine tuned, and and that works really well. Web server, you can schedule jobs, and then it talks to the UR. And tells it yeah where to pick right from, or and and it, yeah and it talks to the to the Doosan and and tells it what programs next. That's awesome. Yeah, it is. It is a lifesaver. Holy smokes! So I mean, I think that is, you look at our machine shop and you're like, do they do anything? But because it's like never running, right? There's I mean, the truth is we crank out more machines than we ever have. Uh, but the but it 
when you can run, you know, 24 hours a day or run, you know, through the weekend, sometimes they'll set up, they'll set up, you know, 25 parts or whatever fits in the rack. And then, and, you know, come in in the morning and most of those will be done and it swaps, well, it runs, it runs like a day at a time. You know, you do about an hour apart. So yeah, Jack, that's pretty epic. It is, it is, uh, it is pretty awesome. But so that also leads to like, there's, you know, four, we've just changed our working week from only being one week on a machine to four weeks, you know, within the, within the work week that that machine can run, which is just amazing. Yeah. And, and then somebody breaks it down from there, loads it up to go, go out to anodize and we ship them off. Wow. So two questions. How do you like the Vero system? Yeah. It is. Is it pretty good? It's amazing. Um, You you definitely, so the universal robot is working with it. It has been pretty good. The, we had, we've had a couple of little incidents that the, I think the, the UR 10 E is only good to 10 kilograms and like a bunch of our parts are right at the edge of 10 kilograms. And this is, it's I think that that model or the, the one we have is four or five years old now probably four years old. And so things have probably changed and gotten better, but there was just a little bit of height deviation when it would set things in. So you could, you could have some issues there just with like, you know, the accuracy of the the robot and the Vero S module, you have to get everything within about um, a millimeter, millimeter and a half, something like that height wise for it to to clamp in properly. So that's something to caution yourself about is like, do I have the right robot for it? If you're out at the end, if we're like at the end of the travel, you know, we try to maximize the travel and stuff. So you're pushing every, everything is pushed to the limit on that. <laughs> you know, so it's like, yeah, no kidding. You're going to have some failures. But, right. Um, you're like, hold yeah. 10 kilograms at full oh extension. My, right, and, right, and totally. <laughs> Here's a part that would kill you if it hits you in the side of the head, you know, but, but like you expect it to get within a millimeter. Uh, so, so, it, you know, after all that talking smack about, uh, Fanic, a Fanic robot would probably be the best option for first person <laughs> loading those. Uh, but uh, we're, yeah, we, we we're doing pretty good with with that setup. And the the Vero S module gets it clamps really tight. It holds things really well. It's incredibly reliable. So awesome. Yeah. And then I, I got, my other question yeah. was, so everybody I talked to who has implemented automation or is starting to it shows the weak points in their process that they didn't know they were going to see. You know, everybody thinks like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, chip chip management or like, oh, tool life or something. But like, then there's like, oh, that one corner builds up with chips and, you know, scraps apart every 30 parts. Like, that's the weird stuff. So I wanted yeah. to see, you know, what weird stuff ha- has automation shown as a flaw in your process and how have you corrected it? Um, yeah, chip buildup is for real. It was really bad on the UMC 750, and it was—it's like the UMC 750 gave you so much room. Yeah, like the inside of the machine just—it has a lot of room in it, which is nice. You know, it's like a ergonomic thing or whatever. But but those corners would build up with chips, and the Doosan, <laughs> the tool probes always get covered in chips. So you like you're, all of a sudden your probe will start airing out and stuff, and it's because it can't communicate because it's covered in chips so that, that that you know that's like make sure your door has been blasted off you don't have any chips in there right and then make sure the the probes are all clean and everything before you start your your, your cycle so you don't have you know it, it stall out in the middle 
and uh, some other weak points. Mm, here's one for you. The, uh, we, we put uh, the rack with the, this isn't, you know, machine tool related, but we put the rack that holds all the parts on one slab of concrete and we put the machine on another. And so between, we, we joke now that like you have to tune the rack in once in the spring and once in the fall, that like the temperature change and all that and the, and the, the ground causes the rack to move just enough that the robot will start dropping parts if you don't. So like you think you have a clamp and you don't and, and that, that if a few times we'd be like, what the hell's going on here? But now we, now we feel like we got it locked down that we know we're pretty darn sure exactly what's happening. Seeing people out on the floor with like a dial indicator on the concrete, you know, <laughs> but then like going from one slab to another and be like, ah, it's, it has moved, you know, <laughs> wow. like, it's time again. So, you know, the next time we'll have to plan for that, uh, which is interesting, you know, so we're looking at this, we're looking at a big machine, DMU 85 with a, with its uh, pH cell. Oh, wow. the, the concrete though is like we're, before we were talking to the rep and he's like, you're probably going to be just fine with it, you know, being on two or being on just a slab that you have there. But now we're like, no way. We'll definitely rip up the concrete and pour in a new slab before we do that. Cause that would be so unbelievably painful to have to pull that machine out with its cell, then do the concrete while it sits where, I don't know, like outside. Right. Yeah. You don't want to gamble on that at all. Yeah. So those, those are the, uh, the, we, yeah, I don't know. the The weak point thing is is for real, and I probably I don't have like too many. You know, I mean, I'm saying the exact same thing that everybody else would say. Uh, it's you know, like chips got places that I wasn't expecting. But those well, you, are you're the first person to talk down. about slabs moving. You know, I I, I think we oh, all yeah. know that it, it does happen, but like I yeah. would never have thought like, oh yeah, these two slabs are going to move enough that my robot's going to error out. Like that's it's like a millimeter, right? And that yeah, that uh, that's, that's all crazy. It takes. Yeah, yeah, that, that's really cool. I mean, it, it's not cool, but it's, yeah. it's, it's a good a point of right. reference. I think if anybody's listening and you know, yeah. thinking about setting up an automation cell, I, right. I never would have had that as a, a thought in my mind of like, oh, I got to make sure they're on the same pad or I got to recalibrate yeah. every so often. So I, I appreciate that. One of the thing we did for automation is we, you know, we took all of our tools and we, we went with like fancy shunk tooling that they have like the hydraulic holder. And the, all the drills are, what do you call those? A Tendo or a Tendo? No, the Tendo is the hydraulic slave. Oh, shoot. I'm, this is pretty sloppy forgetting this. But anyway, the, the, they're like deformed. So it's a, tri- oh, okay. uh, and then uh, the triboss or whatever. And, and so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it, w- the big thing there was like, we kept having people not check tools when they put them in an ER call it. And then they like have run out and problems from that and stuff. And, yeah, is it their fault? Uh, yes, no. I mean, everybody's so busy; they just trying. They're trying to get everything done, and, and like you can see how somebody would miss it, or like they'd measure it wrong, or like it's the end of the day, right? But if you get good tooling, it really helps things because because it just like sets them up for success, and they don't even have right. you know. Just on a side note here for for people who are listening, like so, we used to use Kenametal hydraulic holders, and they were like four or 500 bucks a piece, um, like 250, if you had the, you know, 50% off discount with a new machine typically a shunk ones, like 200 bucks to 250 bucks at a normal price. Right. Right. And then you can get like discounts and stuff from there. So they're actually cheaper. So we realized this after we burned through, uh, some, uh, a couple of kennel metal holders, we, we were like, all right, maybe we should switch to the shunk. What does the shunk ones cost? And, and then we're like, oh no, they're cheaper. We wasted all this money. <laughs> so, and then we haven't had a single problem since. So, you know, 
maybe we were using things wrong. Uh, we definitely were cutting a little different, but you know, some of those, some of those really good tool holders are worth it and they may not be as expensive as you're expecting. Uh, but they can make a huge difference, especially if you don't have maybe somebody who, who has learned over the years of how to set up tools, you know, like, yeah, just dummy proofs the whole system. Yeah, I think so. Right. Yeah. Take it anywhere. You know, something's going to go wrong. Address that area. If it's, you know, going to happen, especially multiple times throughout the year, right? Like we know we're going to change out tools throughout the year. So, and we've got um, 60 something tools in there. So there's 60 something chances at least throughout the year that something's going to go wrong. So, yeah, we're, we're, we haven't quite got the money together yet, but eventually we're going to go Rego fix power grip for that reason. Same kind of thing. You know, it, it's, is it a lot of money? Yeah. But is it dummy proof in that system? So that Brad and I don't have to stress about it. Like, yeah, yeah it, it's, it's worth it, you know? And like shrink fit, I like, but I like, I don't like that. You know, if you scrap a tool in one, you most likely scrap the holder as well. Yeah, like, you know the nice thing is there's. I mean, the, the call it's not cheap in a PG, but like at least it's cheaper than an entire holder. So, you know, we'll we'll, we'll get there, and I'm definitely looking forward to not having to worry about ER call it's you know slipping or run out, like you said. So, yeah, it's yeah, yeah I completely they, agree. They definitely have their time in place, though. Yeah, I don't want to also poo poo those things because there there's you know that's how we got started. A lot of our tools still run on those, and we don't have any problems. And 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 the I think a lot of these you know like. Mari tool and stuff. The, the effort they go through to make a good tool holder shows because, you know, I don't think we've, of like, I don't know, maybe the hundred tool holders we've bought from them or something like that. It is, we, we've had zero issues and they, they all do great. The, the, really, what it comes down to is you get these collets that are made overseas, right? And it's, it's the only area you seem to ever have problems with is the collets. So it's still a great system. It's just, I feel like the, the pitfall is user error and and you know so some of those foreign call those dark foreign calls. right oh yeah. yeah yeah well and like these you know fantastic systems like power grip and tribos they have yeah. their drawbacks too like i don't know about tribos but like power grip you have to use h6 h6 shank tolerance tools or better and then they have to stick out a certain amount like that was one thing yeah. we we bought uh power grip at my last day job and like one thing that was never communicated to us until we had a system was that you have to bottom out in the collets so Hmm. and like they have an adjustment screw but that adjustment screw only goes so far and that means that sometimes you got tools sticking way further out than you really want them and sometimes you know you've got the gash of a tool or the the you know just at the end end of the grind just inside the collet which sucks right so stick out can be a, an issue with systems like that. And I, I don't know if Tribos is like that, but it was one of those. No, things they are like, just literally yesterday. I was like, oh, I need this one and a half millimeter. Drill. So where I'm working on the porting, doing a better job with the porting on the Trunnion. So, you know, we are trying to build all the automation into, into the new machine. And, um, so I'm trying to use this one and a half millimeter drill, like way down in this hole. And I was like, I got just the right tools. I went and bought the, the Sean Kohler and everything. And I got the, one and a half millimeter drill bit I needed on order. And it's like 2000 small, right? The drill bit, the shank. And that thing is just a slip fit in and out of the holder I got. So I don't know what I'm going to do there. I got to figure that out today or tomorrow or, or you know, <laughs> next, next week. <laughs> but I'm like, right. dang, dang it. <laughs> you know, like the simplest thing, all I have to do is clamp down this tool. And yeah, you, it's that's for real. You have to have tools that are 
yeah, like you said, that H6. But there also was never communicated, you know, with me. I, and it, those are, those are things that, you know, get better all the time. People, you know, like that's one thing I love about the instant machines community or whatever. It's like, you know, the, all these people giving you such expert tips on things on how to do, you know, like, uh, how to, how to, you know, what you can really count on these tools for. So, right. Yeah. yeah. Cause yeah. You, you know, like a, a salesman, I don't think is going to lie to you, but they're obviously going to demo it in the most ideal situation. So they'll bring an end mill that fits perfectly in the collet and looks like if, you know, works perfectly with power grip. And then you take any of the tooling that you normally have and you're like, Oh, well, I got to order an extra, like a custom length of this so that it actually sticks yeah. out what I need or something. Great. Okay. But I mean, a lot of salesmen have great. never even used it, right? Like they, right. they just they literally don't know. So it's not even on their radar. Yeah. Well, you mentioned your new machine and I think literally all of the questions we got except for one were about the new machine. So let's, let's dive into what was the question wasn't about the new machine? Well, it was just a comment. A wannabe machinist said, thanks for getting me into the trade. The pocket NC was my first real piece of CNC equipment. Oh, that's yeah. Yeah. Right. I saw that. That was pretty cool. Yeah. I, uh, it reminds me of the Bridgeport, right? Like people use what they got and that's cool that somebody used, uh, used a machine that's, you know, very small and not very sturdy to, to like really take it further. That's cool. Yeah. So new so machine. I guess uh, the first, much- well, Let's go with, so from the Patreon, David Ron asked, he had a couple questions about tooling. So why did you choose Shunk for the Platinum? Yeah, it's what we used here, right? So we, we, we had switched over to using the VeroS modules for our, our zero point work holding. And I was thinking about it when we were, when we were sort of early in the design stage. And it seemed like people are going to, if they have a table with T slots, they're going to just mount some sort of work holding to it. And for anybody who values their time, they're going to real like, maybe you don't, maybe you don't reckon it's not quite a fair thing to say, but if, if, once you use some zero point work holding or some sort of quick change thing, which they're all getting amazing, by the way, like we just happen to use that one, but the, like, I don't know. Langs is amazing. You know, I, I think, Fifth Axis has done an amazing job. And, and like all these things are just, they're just impressive. And, but we, this is the one we were familiar with. And it made such a change. We're like, why are we going to put a table on this to then bolt on, you know, a Vero S module? And then, so we, we just naturally wanted to build it in. And then we also, you know, it was a huge struggle with the UMC 750 to figure out how we were going to pour the air to the automatic vice. And right. what we ended yeah. up doing was, are you just familiar with those like tubes that have like the coil of tube in the center? It's like you push the connect fit, uh, fittings and then like you put the tube in both ends, but it's just got this like long stretchy coil of tube. Like you'd see it like a, you know, oil chain shop or something, but it's yeah. really small. Anyway, yeah, so we, we ran two of those to the, to the vice in the center. And it, we had just had like a thing that was like, do not ever run this more than, you know, 700 degrees or something on the on the c-axis otherwise oh. it would just twist that those things right off and and so <laughs> and so we, we knew we needed through table because there just wasn't an option on the UMC 750 i mean it was you know it's kind of before anybody was doing zero point work holding there anyway so yeah we we knew we had to port that in and 
it's nice because those those modules are designed to be used with air or at least they make ones that are designed to be used with air so that was great yeah it just made sense on a lot of that front and then and then there's vices and stuff you can get off the shelf that fit those and they're only coming up with more and then you can put pallets on it and stuff like that so it, it seemed like it would set people up for success if nothing else just to be able to change out their vice or their fixturing fairly quick okay that makes sense and then his other question was, why did you go HSK over something like ISO 20, which seems to be more common in hobby machines? Was it availability of components or just, you know, full send to get the best you can? Yeah, I didn't see a lot of like ISO 20 holders, like different types of holders for that. Whereas the HSK, while it's still pretty limited to it had a significantly more like there's some crazy small boring bars that are made by big kaiser so that will be nice and then you know there's some really good holders from tribos and stuff and you can still buy the er16 holders and you can get i think there's some er11 ones too so it just there was more options there and then with the high rpm you know originally we were going to be forty thousand or thereabouts and we'll probably offer two options an eighteen thousand and a forty thousand but when we're looking at the forty thousand there's just there's a lot of stuff out there it's like well these tiny tiny little draw bars that are pulling on these pull studs just there's not a lot of clamping force there and and the more you research it basically like if you look at if you look at the hsk i think it's kind of metal that gave a good presentation on it but if if you look at hsk versus uh cat 40 the hsk is is kind of like the I don't know if you're familiar with it, but like the big plus design where it's you get the right, dual, dual contact, contact face. Yeah. And that's really nice because because the you, with with Cat 40, you see like a lot of change in height from spindles warming up and cooling and stuff. And then and it also just like messes with like you, you know, you get that hard pull out, like you that big boom when the you know the the spindles gotten really warm and then it's cooled off. So that's, that's it seems like that's hard on the system. Like the tool changes just aren't as smooth. But you get but like above all else, you get a stronger clamping force the faster the spindle spins because of the way the 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 draw me- the draw bar mechanism works. And then right. also the the when you look at the contact, you end up with like another fifty percent more contact area over cat uh, over the cat size of a, the equivalent. So so you just yeah you have more rigidity there, more tools, and it's better in higher RPM situations for I mean that's my opinion. It's a it, I'm sure on any one of those points you could be like, yeah, but so well so personal I, preference maybe. I did a poor job. Let's set set the stage for what this new machine means to you guys and, and what it is. Because yeah. it is a, a pretty big departure from your guys normal machine yeah. both in size and price you know everything under the sun so what is it what do you like what are the specs so far all that yeah what is it it with with the current machine i i mean i even found myself not using it very often because my time is just so limited so i'm unnaturally going to be drawn to a machine that i can get things done fast on right like same thing for you, Dylan, right? Like how many times you grab the pocket NC V2 to go make your parts <laughs> at work, right? And and I like, I, you, you, it's a great machine. And if you're bound up on, you know, on like getting things, like if you don't have access to machines or you're doing prototyping at home and stuff, it's pro- it could be a really good fit for you. But the, when you have it, the more tool you have access to, 
right? The, the more machine tool you have access to, just the more productive you can be with what little time you have. And so here we are with, you know, a very small portion of our, our users actually being hobbyists, but, you know, professional users. And I think would be surprising to most people listening. Like, I, I would have yeah. never guessed that, you know, looking at the machine itself, I would have thought, okay, this is probably mostly schools or hobbyists or something yeah. like that. And definitely not research labs. Well, yeah. And then, and then like a lot of those schools and I mean, there's a lot of school stuff for training and stuff, but the, but the, some of it, the, that school, we kind of put them in one category is also like, you know, people getting their uh, PhD or whatever, and they're doing some research project, but yeah, it kind of caught us off guard too. And so we had all these people that were asking for more machine that they're in the same boat you are, right? That they have a facility that doesn't have extra space or has power requirements that they, you know, are limited to. They Not everybody has 220 power or whatever. And so they, they bought our machine, but they still wanted more. And, and then, you know, like everybody said, everybody's like, and this is not going to be a shocker to you, but everybody's like, you know, we need coolant and we, we need a, a tool changer and like more rigidity so we can in, in torque and stuff so we can just get things done and we need a little bit more work volume. And so we kind of maximized what we could do within the, some of the machines we had here. And this is sort of what we came up with. Yeah. So, and, and it, as far as like, what is the machine? The machine is hopefully something that we'll that like all want to use personally like i've been trying to design it as if this is something that if it was sitting next to me i would use it to to prototype or make small parts and what are the travels you already said it's an hsk is an hsk what what size is the spindle okay yeah and then what are the travels going to be so we we designed it for a six inch cube which means you have a little bit of travel on every side more than than the six inches but it kind of depends on what you're doing just like our IMTS demo, the fixture and the parts are like 10 inches tall and have a, a diameter of like over eight inches and stuff. So, I mean, it, it, you, there's extra room in some different, it, like I think in X, you could, the max travel is, I'm going to get this wrong. It's probably more than this, but I think like nine and a half inches or something like that. Maybe it's. Oh, wow. Okay. I, I need to double check on that number. You'd think I would know this and I don't off the top of my head. I'm sorry. But, and then, and then Z somewhere over six inches, like seven or something. And then the Y axis is also about that. So somewhere between six and seven inches, probably closer to seven. Okay. Well, and it actually, you answered a couple of the questions, both Denzel makes and Murph's machine were asking about timeline and will there be one at IMCS? And it sounds like you guys will have one there. That's the plan. So <laughs> you, you have to ship, right? So it's like, it, we're, right now it's go time that everybody is putting in their best effort to get this thing out the door. And it's still going to be just like a little bit hacked together. Uh, we call it the, the one right now that I keep posting videos of, we call it the alpha four. And then the, the next one, which should have uh, a little bit more complete anodized look to it, it's going to be called the alpha five. But then the, then we're going to switch into the beta machines, which will have a few different structural things to them. And we, yeah, we kind of hope to have those to, I, I'm going to, I'm going to say like end of the year is, is the goal there. And then, yeah, but, I mean, I think anybody who's worked on a, a large project knows that 
you know, you can have the best intentions of a timeline, but like you don't want to release a bad product, especially, you know, something like this. Yeah, for sure. And for the price point too, it had better work. I'd be ticked if I bought something. I mean, I'm ticked when I buy something for 50 bucks and it's a stinker, you know? Uh, so, so, you know, if it's going to cost more than that, it, it better work. So l- let's talk about price then. What is yeah. the estimated price right now for the machine? The goal is the goal is 60 to 70K. I'm not sure what beta people will get it for. I know Michelle will try, try to give it to him for a really good price because, you know, it's nothing's proven and it's the first set of machines. So can't say there, but yeah, the, the goal, the goal is 60 to 70 K, which I think okay. is, it's, it's expensive. Don't get me wrong, but we're, we're trying to cram so much in this. Like it's, we haven't been cheap on anything. We've really been trying to put our best effort into quality. So I, 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 do, I do hope it's a win for everybody that puts their hands on it, you know? Definitely. Well, so this is one question I wanted to bring to the episode and this is just an external view is it seems like you guys have had a little bit of feature creep when designing this. And I don't, I, well, and, so, and this is not like a, a negative. It's just like from, I had always thought that it was going to be a little cheaper than that, you know, 40 to 50. Yeah. And then it just seems like, Oh, now there's like this new thing. And Oh, now there's gorilla glass and now there's, you know, this. So, okay. Is yeah, that right. something that you guys have been struggling with or has this been the plan the whole time? And it's just, you know, you haven't, gotten to that part of the prototype for people to see it yet designing for me is like a drug addiction right like i cannot help myself <laughs> and michelle helps me rein it in and, and yeah i think she'd be sitting here uh like yeah you need to get together a little bit and she does get mad at me for price stuff which it like on is like it's a real it's a real problem right like you could be basically go off into infinity right designing the perfect machine and just making it more and more expensive. Okay, Gorilla Glass. I'm gonna explain myself there. So okay. when we got when we got our first mini mill, which still runs, by the way, and it's it's like we always joke that that machine you couldn't you couldn't destroy it because anything on it is replaceable and at a decent price, right? Uh, but it came with uh, plexiglass on it, and so it was like within six months you couldn't see through it. It seemed like you know from all the chips hitting it, and and then the UMC 750 wasn't much better that it, it had it has like. Well, it can take a tool hitting it hard and like a bullet, you know, and it not break. It still would get to like to the point where you couldn't see through that glass and we had to replace right. the glass on it. So I never even, to be honest, looked at what or considered regular glass for it. I, I was pretty adamant I got about the Gorilla glass, but it wasn't that much more expensive. I was, I, when I was talking to the glass manufacturer, this is the same. Have you, are you familiar with the International Space Station? Like a little bit, maybe? A little bit, yeah. 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 So, you know, that there's like this window that like you can see out and it's got all these you can see, same company that built the, those windows for the, for the space station. But it was a little bit of a draw, but they were, they were talking about the cost of glass and they're like, yeah, no, no, the Gorilla Glass is now all that much more expensive. It's going to cost you an extra 20%, which and honestly, the windows aren't all that expensive. Um, they're not cheap. They're not, ex- they're not that bad. I mean, it looks cool. Like yeah. it looks like a Thanks. spaceship now, like with. You know, all that put together. It looks <laughs> fantastic. Thanks. But I wanted windows that were like unlikely to break and we're going to hold up to the test of time, right? Like you spend your, all your time, you know, squinting into a machine and, and trying to make sure you're not going to break it. And it's like the least you can do is make sure the windows aren't going to be, you know, see-through. So that should hold. It's like, the I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Gorilla Glass, but it's like. Yeah, it's on my phone. 
Yeah, right. And it doesn't scratch hardly. Yeah. I mean, you can scratch it, but it's like compared to an iPhone 4 or something like that. God, it's it's amazing. It's unbelievable. So, yeah. Yeah, the, I, I think I watched a video on how they make it too. And it's like insane. You know, they're making like yes. almost like a Prince Rupert <laughs> drop, but in a flat plane to put on your phone. It, it's yeah. really cool. It's unbelievable. Yeah. And then, I don't know, like you could say that putting on the you know, the Vero S module is, is also a little bit of that, like, okay, it's not going to fit everybody's needs and porting the air through and all that. But these are like, there's just going to be people coming back to us in a few years being like, cause we really, in the future, we really want to release this with a, a robot or re- release a robot for it. You know, that's why the door is automatic and stuff like that. And none of these things were actually that expensive when we put them on our machine for, for automating our own stuff internally. But the time it takes to like modify things is just frustrating, right? Like uh, all these people who have great ideas and they want to go out and make them and stuff. It's it's difficult because you you now you have to make sure you, like do you find a job shop or do you make it yourself? Uh, and like okay, if you're standing behind a machine with a part that you've already proven for the fiftieth time and you're sitting there changing it by hand, you know that's difficult. So you want to go and automate it. Guess what? You know the learning how to use a universal robot, even as simple as they are, it's not totally easy, you know? So try, trying to make some of that easier for people with what we've learned, we can do it now or we can do it later. And so there's a little bit of product creep there, right? And so was this yes, about yeah. the price point that you were anticipating from the beginning? No, I was hoping, <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was hoping, I was hoping 30, 30 to 40,000 and you know, the, with a V1, I was hoping we could sell those machines for a thousand dollars too. And it ended up being, it's just expensive to, to make this stuff. You know, you have to have uh, enough margin to provide really good support and you have to, you know, there's, there's a, the, the problems kind of go off into, you know, never, never land uh, and you're just trying to figure out how you can always improve things. Like we're still, we still release software updates all the time for the V2 that are just like crazy improvements. Right. But they, in order to do that, it takes, it does take some money. So uh, yeah. And, and I, I, maybe someday we'll, we'll figure out how to make things lower cost and there. You can do things in scale and do that, but there's also just not that many people buying machines and like the, you know, there's machine machines, small group of people. Yeah. And I think that knowing now that you're targeting this at your, your main user group, which is not hobbyist. Like I think a lot of us anticipated, yeah. it makes a lot more sense. Cause I was talking to somebody on the discord about this and I was like, well, maybe, you know, this is for shops that would buy like a, a Daytron Neo. Like that's yeah. not a cheap machine either, but like if, if it fits in your room, your you know, your clean engineering office, that kind of makes more sense. Like I'll spend yeah. a little more to have something that, that works in that environment. So I, I can understand it for sure. Yeah. Um, what uh, you mentioned software, what's going to be the control on this? Cause you guys use a beagle bones and machine kit on the V1 and V2. Is that correct? Yeah. And we're calling the new, so it's kind of like a, a branch from machine kids. I'm not a software guy. So you know, take this with a grain of salt, but yeah, so we, we use the BeagleBone because of computing power that's on it. it you know, it's got a lot of real-time control stuff, which makes it great and, and unbelievably fast in, in some areas. Like 
you know, pulse generation or like it's called these things, these things called PRUs and they're, they're incredibly fast at looking at signals and processing signals and, and, um, way faster than you'll ever get with, you know, a windows computer. And, and so, or at least from my, my understanding anyway, <laughs> and then, and then uh, we, we've got our own kind of interface that we're calling a kinetic control. And we're, it's still a work in progress, but we're, we're trying to, trying to do kind of what Haas did, right? Like bring a lesser number of button presses and more functionality and, and, and provide it in a way that makes sense to, to machinists and helps them with all kinds of features that we're, we're excited about adding here in the future. But some of that is only possible if, you know, we can control the interface. So like, for instance, we had, you know, we had to write our own, I say, we, I had nothing to do with this, but the, the, <laughs> the, the, the TCPC, right. And, and the tool center point control and, and dynamic work offset. And, and those had to, those, those were only possible because we were using, you know, Linux CNC, which we could write our code for, but it, if we were using somebody else's software, like we could, we could put a fan control on the machine, but we'd be at the mercy of, you know, what they had time for and, and working with their software engineers. And in some ways, it's just easier to do it yourself if you Definitely. have the right people. Yeah, for sure. So what, what's the hardware that it's running off of this time? Computer-wise? Yeah. It's it's also a BeagleBone, but it's a newer newer BeagleBone. So it's, it's called a BeagleBone AI. So it's it's like a quad-core uh, quad processor, and it's got more PRUs and you know more bells and whistles. Very cool. Yeah, uh, it's, it's nice. And, and they've been... And, you know, the, the, the people say BeagleBone, really what it is, it's just like this group of engineers at Texas Instruments, you know, as I understand it, that they, that they just kind of like held, held what they did hostage. And they, they, uh, you know, were super passionate about making a, a computer that was similar to, you know, the Raspberry Pi, but they wanted theirs to be, you know, like all this real time stuff and have some, some features that were really great for robotics. And, and so it is incredibly good at that. I mean, it's really just a Texas Instruments piece of equipment and it's called the BeagleBone. Okay. Very cool. Let's see. We've got a few more questions. What is the tolerance that you're aiming to hold with this machine? That's from Denzel Makes. That's tough. So we'll give people, I think when we get closer, we'll give people really good information on that. On the on the Beagle or on the on the V two, you know, we said this is great for for work that's like plus or minus five thousands. And it's tough because it's using stepper motors that you don't. You, there's there's a lot of reasons why it can go be you know outside of perfect. And like when so we went through this non nuclear proliferation stuff, and the FBI came and. And it was uh, super intense and they, they made us do like this, all these calibration things on the V2 and, and some of the numbers we got really pushed us into that direction because they would be, it would be incredibly accurate, but these are like under no loads and, you know, with, like without a bunch of debris on it. And so like in this ideal scenario, you can, you have a machine that's far more accurate than it is in the actual machine case. So we've yet to really prove that. I, I mean, I think the goal is to have it be very similar to like Haas mini mill, you know, with okay. its, with its accuracy, but you know, we're, we're still writing like probing routines to, to check parts and stuff. And we're, you know, we, it's going to take some time before we can, you know, 
really nail it down. I, I feel like that's such a sheepish answer, Answer, right? Like, I'm just trying to dodge the question. I make stuff all the time that, like, you know, plus or minus a thousand spin inches is, you know, within the spec that I need. And it would be really nice if, if people could count on that throughout, you know, the whole working volume. But, you know, we'll, we'll post... We'll post some actual real information at, at the time before people are committed to buying machines so that they actually know what they can get. You know, we're not going to be out there saying, oh, it's got a resolution of, you know, 30 millionths of an inch because that does nothing for you, right? Like, right. oh, but it's not square within, you know, a mile. So, um, right. Yeah. I think a lot of people don't really inherently understand the difference between linear accuracy and volumetric accuracy. And especially yeah. in a five axis, that's when things can really go off the rails. You know, it's like, yeah. oh, well, yeah, all the, all the axes are good, you know, to within two tenths. And it's like, yeah, but it's not square and it, it doesn't have any comp and it, you know, it's, it's garbage from point to point in three, 3D space. Oh my God. Compensation. You want to talk about that for a minute? That's yeah. Well, we had one of the questions from Kara Curry PGH was about how did you map the thermal comp to do the cooling channels and all yeah, that. Right. So let, let's talk about um, all that because that, that's a big thing. Yeah, we put so the, the cooling channels try to follow the rail beds on those, keep the, keep the rail beds. Uh, but then we also go perpendicular to the rail beds in some places. For the most part, you, we were fairly pinned down on where we could fit those cooling channels, just because of the just where everything is, right? Like there's there's only so much you can do to place things, but really try to get them under those rail beds and and then perpendicular to them. So like. For instance, the frame is like a giant square with a big hole, a big square cut out of it, right? And and we know that those vertical, there'll be vertical growth pulling the two rails apart. And then there'll also be growth along those rails. And so trying to reduce that as much as possible, we think will be a big help. And, and the, the reason we went with the, the, the cooling, and we're still working on it, by the way, but the reason we want that on the machine is because like... With the UMC 750, with the UMC 1000, we see all these problems that are related to thermal growth. And while you can have like lookup tables and stuff, you know, internal to the machine to to do this stuff, you want to minimize thermal compensation because, from my experience, it must be a difficult problem to solve because nobody does it super well, right? The right. best, the the best. The, I don't do any sports, but the best uh, way it's the best uh, defense is good offense or whatever, or something like that, or maybe they say the opposite, but something like that. And, and so I think just trying to really attack the problem or, you know, approach the solution, the best approach is going to be to try to just get rid of it. Right. Um, yeah. I think that all the best yeah. machine tool builders in the world start with the best mechanical accuracy they can. Yeah. And then improve on it from there. But like, it, it's really hard. You know, if, if you got one axis going out a few thou due to the thermal growth, you can only do so much at, at some point to fix that. Yeah. That problem is real. So then, you know, to kind of segue into, segue into the compensation areas of it, that is complex. So John, John's working hard on this one. And, and I, I, he won't let us down because he he's just not a quitter. But uh, so we figure there's like fifteen just just as like a standard compensation. There's fifteen levels of compensation that have to happen just for the five axis, just like just as a starting point. So if you imagine you've got like one linear axis, right, and it travels that it has to be compensated for in x and y. 
right? That's not going to travel straight with the exception of you can choose one axis. Like you can choose your X axis and just say it's straight and, and everything else is going to be put in line with your X axis. So that, so, so for the other four axes, you have an X, Y, and Z problem that it's not going to be perfect in Z and it's not going to be perfect in X or Y. So you build up a whole bunch there. And, and then all of a sudden now you've got some thermal compensation, right? Which is weird. And then you have a, a layer of like deviation in the straightness. So it's not like the compensation, it's not like you can just say that any given axis goes out indefinitely in space and it, with the, these, you know, this angle, it's going to go out in space and it's going to change in X and Y. So you have like these lookup tables in X and Y and Z for any given point. And then, and then like you have, yeah, the same problems with rotaries and yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> and then, but then, and now you do like TCPC. So now you have to do all these translations and then you have to translate them with TCPC. And it's like, Oh God, you know? So it's, I don't know how many, it, like it's beyond me and it's a work in progress, but we are definitely kicking some butt in that area. So like John was just doing the he was doing some some compensation stuff in the other day with the tooling ball. And I'm gonna get his numbers wrong, damn it. I I wanna say it was like with compensation, you know, he was he was seeing repeatability within like a half a micron or something like that too. Yeah, I think wow. it was a, a half like to the point where you're like, okay, yeah, those numbers aren't real, right? Like right. They, they don't mean anything. You, you start breathing on stuff. It's uh, but so yeah. so the the compensation is possible, and and we can see we can actually co compensate for for things, which is cool. So now you have to like when you once you can see that you you can provide compensation in certain areas and improve the machine's accuracy. Now like you have to apply that to all the different levels and read, you know, test it and stuff and cut parts and check to make sure they actually came out square and, you know, put those on the CMM and try to, try to get real information there and check your work. So it's, it's a process for sure. Uh, oh yeah, definitely. Um, but I think, but we're going to have good compensation. That's what I'm excited about, which is, which is great because you, nobody can build a perfect machine. You know, um, you right. see it on the best machines there, they're compensating. So what's the, the backbone of this as far as movement systems? Is it servos and ball screws and rails or, you know? Yeah. So we're using C5 ball screws. They're not the best. They're not bad by any means. They're ground ball screws. So they're made by, I think we, I think we tested both NSK and THK. So they, they have a deviation. I mean, I'm also going to get this wrong, but like, I don't know, one micron or something over a meter or, you know, so it basically a low enough that it, that is not going to be the problem in your compensation tables. Um, and that it's nice because those do give you, you know, per raisin, you know, per degree, what your compensation is linearly over a meter. They're super nice. And then the, the servo motors are, we're, we're using Technic servo motors, which is amazing. Um, which is ClearPath, right? Is yeah, 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 company? right. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So they make those ClearPath motors and they just really have their stuff sorted it's it's an, it, the more you use those motors the more you become or at least the more i'm impressed like so we get we can see all the increase in torque for like at any given time on the motors and and all that information and it, it's so accurate we, we were the, the other day we were like where is it we were getting like a torque ripple and we're getting we tracked it down to we were getting it four times per revolution of the motor and and it's just like an insanely small increase in torque and uh, but it's important because you don't want to have harmonics in the machine when it travels and everything and rapids and and it, what it came down to is 
the motor coupling we're using. So we're using a really nice motor coupling, but it, it is, it has a two, two, two axes that it can pivot on. Right. And they really nice coupling, but you could see when it would go through this like plane, it would, it would just have a tiniest ever so small amount of binding and you could watch those ripples. Oh, so and, it's like, uh, rack, like, it's like racking as it turns kind of thing. On yes. The... And, 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 but, and, and we're, but you're like, what is this? This is not perfect. What is this? And, and, uh, <laughs> that's what it came down to. So they've been amazing motors to work with. The people are brilliant and uh, I think it's going to really help us in that front. And then for like the rotary axes, they're harmonic drives. So the cy- cycloidic old planetary redu- reducers right like 51 reduction they're zero backlash and they're great for this machine i it, it will do something different in the future but you know the built-in bearings and stuff so they're they're pretty pretty dang good yeah well that's basically what drives your ur i think those are all cycloto yeah, yeah. joints in fact for a long time it was really hard to get those because Universal Robots was sucking up all of the, <laughs> the like the production of the uh, capacity of the the company Harmonic Drive. So, yeah, that was that was a tough tough time. We could it was going to be like thirty weeks before we could get a pro, you know first piece. God. Right. So, are are you able to generate enough speed on that for like the C axis that it's not going to be the limiting factor on true five like axis steel n- paths? It's like 90 degrees a second, which isn't insanely fast, but it's not bad though. No, it's, it's faster than what the, it's faster than what the, our UMC machines will do. So it's going to, I think it will be comparable to that. And I, I know like the further you, out you go right in the, from the center of the rotation, the faster those rotaries have, I guess that's also not always true. Anyway, um, no, I think it'll be fast. It'll be fast enough for, for the, for the first go anyway. So, okay. That's really cool. I'm really excited to see it at IMTS. I'll definitely come by and then, you know, say hi and check out the machine. Cause that, it, it looks so cool. Yeah. We're pretty, we're pretty excited. We're, so, we're working on the, you've seen the, the design, the everything's little carabiner compliant mechanism. And, and so we've been working with him on, that's going to be our demo part. We're, we're stoked. So we're going to get, do, try to do as many of those as humanly possible and give those that's- as a give, giveaway at the show. Yeah. yeah. I was, uh, yeah. AJ had posted. He was like, "Yes, yeah, somebody licensed my design, you know, a, mach- a machine builder." And I was like, "Who could it be?" And then I saw your post, and I was like, "Oh, that's so cool!" It all makes sense now. Yeah, yeah. yeah he, was, he was super kind to let us use lose you know, use this design for that. And yeah, that's nice epic. Guy. Yeah, yeah. Well, that brings me on to shop news and new things. You kind of mentioned a future purchase. DMG. Yeah. When yes. is all that supposed to ha- be happening, and, and what's the deal with that? So we've just been sorting out, making sure we we know everything we want on that machine. They are a year out on when we Ooh. buy it. If, I know. So it's like, you, well, you should have bought it a year ago, but at the same time, it's a, it's difficult to make sure you make all the right decisions and get all the you know the right features for what we're doing. Like we, we damn near pulled the trigger on a DMU sixty five, but the we would have been like a half an inch short on the tool, almost exactly a half an inch short on the, for the, like the, our drill for our cooling channels. So it, like w- that would have been cut wrenching. So we're trying to make sure we have everything sorted and right before we pull the trigger. And it's, it's not that like it's inevitable, but it, you know, we're going to, we're going to get there with, with the, uh, an automation cell for it. 
it's just all a ton of work. And, and right now, INTS is the big priority, right? Just making sure we have something to show for that. And then, yeah, I, I think in the, as far as shop news goes, you know, we picked up a CMM that we're trying to improve our calibration process even more for the V2 line. So we're, we're still always improving that. And we're trying to automate the, you know, the, the calibration and just improve the quality there. We What'd also, you get? uh, Chris, Chris to apex. I don't know the number off from the top of my head, how big it is. Um, but I made it to yeah. yeah. And it's got the five axis probing head, which is nice and super fast. And we actually had to buy an older generation one. So that was more hackable for the software guys. But they, <laughs> they're, they're, the, the, the new Meditoya ones is Meditoya's own proprietary control and the old ones use this thing called uh, UCC server, which is like an I plus plus communications protocol. And they, that they can manipulate to get to do whatever they want, but the new, so if you bought a new one today, you'd better, uh, start looking at retrofits. So, okay. I mean, if you want to do what we were doing, that's what, where you'd be at. And then, um, you know, we've got some, some better equipment for our pick and place line. Like a, we've got a solder jet, which is cool. Yeah. But the news is we're just, you know, cranking away at trying to be ready for IMTS and put on a decent show. We're going to be right next to Bantam Tools. How cool is that? Oh, awesome. Yeah. Brew was like, we should do something for IMTS together. And we've both been super busy. But in the end, he was like, you guys should be next to us. And that was a long time ago. I think that was the last IMTS. And so uh, whoever whoever got our booth got us right next to them. So it was fun. That's Very excited. excited. Yeah. Oh, well, I think we will all come check you out and then see the new machine. Oh, and it's it's going to be really cool. We're like off in the corner, right? Like we're in the bathroom, like one of the stalls. So <laughs> <laughs> we're in stall well, number five in the men's room. <laughs> well, your machine would fit, you know? It's, yeah, it's, it's perfect. It's a nice, yeah, right. Yeah. It's perfect. Plug in near the back of the toilet. Yeah. <laughs> well, that brings me to the last question I ask every guest, which is what did you research this week? And it can be machining related. It could be anything under the sun, but you know, what's been popping up in your search browser? Vices. Uh, I'm looking, I've been looking at small work holding for the, for the show. I am. Yeah. So there's actually not, I mean, I shouldn't say there's not a lot of vices that are in the small realm. There are, there are, but ones that fit our need. And so I've been kind of looking at chunks and stuff. The KSC mini or. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So those guys are very nice. They're giving us six of those for the, in the show. So I know they're so nice. They're very good to us. And, but it, it, it seems like their products are all great. And anyway, and, and small tooling, I, it worries me that like, there just won't be, uh, this is what I've been researching tool holders and collets. Like, you know, you look at doing all these like long tools and these special applications and we need more like we, what we really need is a 12 millimeter hydraulic clamping tool holder for the HSK E25 because there's, you can get sleeves that are 12 millimeters that go down to just about any size. And, it, and that would be a cheap, cheap thing. But then also like extensions, you know, a lot of the extensions are in that half inch, 12 millimeter. And so like for people to be able to like really reach these tiny little areas, you know, I mean, you, you look at, you're still using small tools in a lot of applications and, and I, a lot of those tools are inch and a half in length. And, you know, they're not going to grind it on a five inch piece of carbide. And if they did, it would be super expensive. So I've been trying to, trying to figure out, I'm trying to put together like a, a big listing catalog of 
all the different small things that fit our machine and fit you know these these small any of these small applications for people but i'm also researching you know who can make them there's companies all over diebold makes some really good stuff there's laip out of spain and Shunk makes a bunch of their stuff out of Germany and stuff. A lot of it's, you know, obviously European. There's still a way to go on uh, for, for people to actually have everything they, they need. Same, I mean, it's like the same problems, right? That everybody else has like, the hell kind of tool holder do I use for this you know, job? I got, <laughs> got no clearance on anything, so I can't use a call it. Yeah. Or a call Does it holding. Tribos make a extension? Like a they small- make some... They make some small stuff, but all their extensions are 12 millimeters at the base or half inch. And so, but they don't make a HSK 25 12 holder and nobody goes over 10 because they're afraid somebody's going to put a, you know, a 12 millimeter end mill in it and just wreck the spindle, which is a legitimate fear. So yeah, just, just like everybody's always pushing the limit of what they can do with their machines. Darn people, (laughs) you know, like we're... If you're, you're one of them, you know, and I'm one of them and yeah. Anyway, so yeah, machinists are the best. We're the, we're the best in the world at wrecking stuff. Yeah. So you, what did you say at the beginning of the show? You said we're like, we're, we're good at finding the breaking point of, uh, oh of yeah. that is the story there. Right. Yeah. You tell us a, a 10 millimeter max and we're going to say, okay, but yeah, what about a 12? Well, yeah. Right. What if I'm really light on a 12? Like, yeah. Like, <laughs> 11.1. Can we do that? Um, <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Uh, well, Matt, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on. It's been great to get to meet you and talk about the new machine and, and everything Pocket NC. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Dylan. It was very kind of you to have me. Honestly, I was totally jazzed. Oh, no ways. I was pretty stoked when you when you asked. You got a pretty, pretty awesome show and you got some people on that actually had some good things to you know, some, some real information to share. Unlike myself, I mean, I feel like I didn't, sh- didn't share any real secrets, but no, I, I appreciate you having the show just so we can hear cool things. Yeah. My pleasure. I, I definitely include you among that list. I mean, I, oh. like I said, I, <laughs> I, I, kind. I reached out cause so many people had so many questions about your machine and <laughs> I, I really appreciate you, you know, giving us a, an inside look on what's going on, what you guys are testing. I think that that's super interesting and I'm really looking forward to seeing it at IMTS and, and, where it goes from there oh cool right on yeah no the instagram account uh, I've, i posted that and, and like i try to answer people's questions best i can on there too i'm not it's, it's, i don't i don't love doing it but we had so many people just like asking for progress reports even within like our own distributors and stuff so it became nice to just have that that is like a place i could since i'm not very secretive i could just post things about what we were doing and i'll probably delete that instagram account when the machine's uh, done to, <laughs> to be honest, but it's fun for now to like get a share of progress reports with people and, you know, so they can wonder where they're at and not have to be, you know, feeling like they're pestering or whatever like that. Cause it's cool. It's cool that people are so kind and, you know, are, are cheerleaders out there, but it feels kind of shitty to just leave some people hanging, you know, when they're, yeah. when they're so kind. So uh, yeah, that's, that's the goal for now. Anyway, you know, post post material and, and let them see what the progress is. And then, uh, from there, yeah, who knows, maybe just delete that account (laughs) yeah all right well thank you again thanks to all the patreon members who make this show possible and thanks everyone for listening i'll be back next week